again, I hope you'll be with us for the evening service. Brother Tim Melton will be here, missionary to Japan. I hope you'll come and share with us in the service tonight at 6 o'clock. Choir members, I hope that you've noted choir practice at 5.30 tonight, not 5 o'clock, 5.30, choir members, if you'll please note that. This morning we come to a passage of Scripture that um, is uh, both interesting and rather amazing, I guess, and uh, one that we need to, I think, get uh, much acquainted with, and I hope that you will do that this morning. So uh, let's look together, if we could please, to Romans chapter 8. Look, if you would, please. Begin reading in verse number 26, Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself or himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. This message this morning is simply entitled, A Great Guarantee. In the fine print, it says, with a guarded application. So when you come to Romans chapter 8 and this passage, that's really how it is. It's a great guarantee, but it has a cautious or a guarded application. And I fear that that's not been made properly, and we intend to make it this morning, and I hope that you'll stick with us. I'm somewhat amazed by the many people in what we call the public arena who uh, state a position and then simply quote a Bible to back it up, and doing so, they, one, take often what they're saying out of context, wherever it's written in the Scripture, and two, they only quote a portion of the passage of Scripture from which this particular issue is addressed, or in some cases, they do not mention the balance of what God feels about it from other passages. They pick the one that agrees with them, and then they stop there. Or they make a sweeping statement that the Bible teaches something, and obviously they're playing on the idea that the general public is ignorant about what the Bible says, when in fact what they say the Bible teaches, it does not teach at all. So those are things that concern me and have concerned me for some, some time here. Um, a good example of this is um, someone who, and you've often seen it, it'll be written in articles in the newspaper and editorial pages especially, and editors, letters, that kind of thing, that there's a great deal of emphasis on God's love. There's just an overwhelming amount of, of letters to editors that's written about God's love. And uh, what's interesting is the absence of any discernment or any writing about God's anger, God's wrath, God's judgment, God's hatred for sin. Yet as anybody who knows the scriptures and studies them and has studied them for any length of time knows this. And if you don't know it, you should know it and you should never forget it. All the attributes of God are perfectly balanced. Don't ever forget that. All the attributes of God are perfectly balanced. So if you take one and you run over here and you just talk about this one and it has a balance over here and you don't mention that equally, then you're not fair with proper presentation of who God is. 
That's not who God is. God's not out of balance. He's not a tire that has the weights that have been switched on the wheel so the thing's running sort of cockeyed. That's not what it is at all. All the attributes of God are perfectly balanced. Now listen to me. That does not mean that there, for every word about the love of God, there is a word in the Bible about the hatred or the uh, anger of God. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that for several reasons. One reason is that that's just not true. Did you know that in the Scriptures there's more said about the anger, judgment, wrath, and hatred of God for sin and its reflective results than there ever has been about His love? You wouldn't know that by what you read in the paper, would you? You'd think that every page of the Scriptures, you know, it's about God love, God love, God love, God love. He does. He does. But He also hates. And if you don't get what He hates and what He loves in proper balance, you're going to sell the wrong idea to a general public, and you'll forgive me, but the public's already bought the wrong end of this one. Because that's all they know. They just know God loves everybody. I don't care what you do. I don't care how you behave. God loves you. Well, there's certain truth in that. God loved the whole world and gave His Son for it. But be careful when you cross that line when there are folks who, quote, uh, come to understand what sin is and they just keep going in it. Here's a situation that uh, I, I think that is, uh, is prevalent not only from my point of view, but it's become actually a sore point with me, very frankly. And, and that is what uh, you and I both know of as the uh, letters to the editor. For instance, I, I took three. Uh, Tom brought me a whole page of uh, letters to the editor this morning from the Indianapolis Star. I have not scanned those. Randy brought me these last week. And uh, so here, here's three illustrations of them. And you can find it most often in letters to editors. Here's what it says. This, this first one says, quote, uh, I'm writing in regard to the gay marriage ban. I'm a gay male who has been raised in a conservative fundamental church setting, so I know my Bible. This guy knows his Bible, but he's as dead wrong as dead wrong can be. You know, and he says, I am now in the process of becoming a full member of the Episcopal Church. God is still a big part of my life. Now, you'll forgive me. I don't know what God he's talking about as a big part of his life. But the God of the Bible would coming into a part of his life would convict his socks off. Convict his socks off. You see, God's not going to have anything to do with a guy who's a homosexual who knows that the Bible says that it is an abomination to God. Now, how can you say he and God are just in this lovey-dovey relationship when the Bible declares openly and clearly that God hates it? You see, that's a misnomer. That's a, that's a misunderstanding that this guy's got about the Scriptures. Here's another one. This one's written by a guy by the name of Kerry. He says, um, I'm a lifelong follower of the teachings of Jesus Christ. My beliefs dictate that God rejoices at both gay and straight marriages and blesses them equally. I wonder where he got that. I wonder where he read that. I wonder where he was taught that. I wonder what sorry church this guy went to that he was taught that God blesses and encourages straight and homosexual marriages just the same way. You see, that's why it's a sore point with me. I never heard such foolishness in all of my life. Somebody is not reading the scriptures because that's not what the Bible says. He goes on, he says, because of such vastly divergent opinions, the beliefs and interpretations of various groups of Christians, it should not influence the discussion about our, our civil laws as an issue of gay marriages. You'll forgive me, but that's the only basis to make such a decision. What does God say about it? There's a third one. This one comes in most unique form. It thanks the Indianapolis Star for their evening update and fair reporting about the rallies at the State House. That's not what I heard in being fair. I heard they misquoted the numbers immensely as to the number outside to the number inside. And Brother Mike was there, and he testified to the same thing I heard. And uh, the, the 
I don't know where they got this thing about fair. But anyway, the point is this. He says, I'm, uh, I am not in favor of the constitutional amendment, the Senate Joint Resolution 7. Not only will it deny rights the same-sex couples, but it will also threaten the rights of heterosexual couples who are unmarried and sharing the same households. And in an area where divorce is all too frequently, we should respect anyone who can make a relationship work. <laughs> You'll forgive me. I don't know where planet these folks come from. Then he goes on. This gets worse. I am the pastor in the Christian church, the Disciples of Christ, and our denomination has decided to pray about it. How do you pray about something that God is as clear as a nose on your face? God says, I hate this thing. Now, how do you go pray about something that God has declared himself very clearly? I'll tell you how you do. You get so caught up in the fact that God loves everything. Oh, God loves everybody. Do whatever you do, God loves you. And they get this idea, you can live like you want to live, and God just loves you the same. They're just, oh, yes, oh, love, one, everything, it's just all right. You'll forgive me, but that's not what the Scriptures teach at all. Does God love everybody? Yes, He loves everybody. Does God love everybody the same? Yes, He loves everybody the same. Can He love and hate at the same time? You bet your socks He can, and does. Because all through the Scriptures, and especially in the Old Testament declaration of how God hates that, what He understands is you and I should understand is that the devil and these people, their own flesh, has so thoroughly duped them and deceived these people, they now call evil good and good evil. Rightly, it could be said of this crowd of people who have written as it was of our Lord when He spoke in the Gospel of John. And He said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. And that's what these folks are doing. They're not doing the will of God. They're not doing the bidding of God. They're doing their own thing. And that's exactly why they write and do and speak as they do. But they're not the only issue. They, homosexual gay marriages, is not the only issue that's gotten out of whack. I'm, I'm weary of going to funerals or reading about them in a, in a newspaper and accounting of them. Where the deceased is said to have become an angel. Whether it be a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, or a baby. Now listen, here at the New Life Baptist Church, we should know better and should never even hint at when somebody dies, they turn into angels. They don't. Angels are created beings and have been from the creation of the world. There are no more angels as far as the Scriptures declare to be created, and there are none of them that die off. God's got all He needs and all He wants, and there are not going to be any more. And when you die, you do not become an angel. You are simply a redeemed being, and you enter into the presence of God, and you'll be there forever. As we read in the preliminaries of Sunday school, there is no marriages in heaven. By the way, men, that means no weddings, no more to attend. Isn't that not good? The Bible says that. No weddings in heaven, no more marriages. The reason is very simple. Because there's no reason for procreation in heaven. Why? Because everybody there is going to do what? Live forever. Nobody's going to die, so there's not going to need to be a replenishing of the population. Heaven, when the door's shut, it's finished, it's done, no weddings, no marriages, and no procreation. Everybody's there is going to get there and no more be coming. It's a done deal. My friend, the fact of the matter is that we misunderstand. The world at large misunderstands that, and nobody tends to call their hand on it. It also bothers me, and yea, verily saddens me, that some Christians have this attitude of what we call departmentalizing their lives. Two weeks ago, a gentleman said to me, I give God Sunday and Wednesday, the rest is all mine. I give him Sunday and Wednesday, but the rest is mine. You'll forgive me, but he's been deceived. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you've been bought with a price... You are not your own. Every moment of your life belongs to Him. And I might add, He can take your life at any moment He wills. 
Or he can let natural processes take its place. He can let you just grow old and die. He can do that if that's his pleasure. But my point is, your life is in his hands, and you better remember that to give him your whole life, even as you can. There's something else that saddens me, and that is I, I'm wearied and I'm saddened to hear it so frequently stated, and sometimes in newspaper print, in letters to the editor, and that is the statement, quote, It does not matter what you believe or what church you attend, they're all the same. That's not true. It does matter on both counts, and eternity will prove that. There's this last one, and that brings us to the text of Romans chapter 8. There's this ideal going around that Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28, where we come to today, the text simply states, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. There are this ideal going around today that everything works for the good of everybody. That's not true. That's not true. This text does not say that. What this text says, I hope to share with you in the next few moments, and I hope you will get a hold on it. But first, let me read you something across my desk this week. It came in in a letter. It said, A number of years ago, an amazing story about a rock collector from Georgia named Rob appeared in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Rob, like others in his trade, hunted for rocks and then sold them out of little roadside shops to collectors or jewelry makers. That kind of work didn't always pay the bills, and occasionally he would moonlight cutting wood to help put bread on the table. One rock he found didn't sell. Describing it as simply pretty and big. Rob kept it under his bed or in his closet for 20 years. He guessed the blue stone could bring as much as $500, but he would have taken less if something urgent came along, paying his power bill, for example. The rock just sat there. But eventually the truth about Rob's fine came to light. To this day, he probably is embarrassed, even trembles a bit, when he remembers how poor his judgment was and how costly it could have been. The big blue rock he had abandoned to a dark corner of his house became known as the Star of David, the most valuable sapphire ever found. It weighed nearly a pound and at the time was valued at nearly $3 million. In hindsight, it's easy to be critical of this man. How could we have been or he have been so reckless? How did he ever mistake something so precious for something so worthless? Didn't he know what was at stake? And in fact, wasn't he being able to discern a good find and a worthless one really the whole fundamental responsibility of his job as a rock collector? These are all valid questions, the writer says. And if I had only one prayer for God's people today, it would be that we develop that same passion for discernment in areas that are infinite, more encouraging, extremely more important. More than ever, we need people who are able to discern in matters of what the Bible teaches and what it does not teach. And I come to you today on that basis because that's really what the text is and what it has in recent days come to light concerning. That's the passage we teach and talk about today. Romans chapter 8, look at the verse again. Romans 8, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. first thing you should note in that verse of Scripture is that it begins in the English language with a conjunction. In reading the Scriptures, you always note, how does the verse start? A conjunction means that it is not disconnected from what's just been said. It is, in fact, connected to it. 
It is a carry-on. It, it means with beginning this with a conjunction, the truth that we had seen coming in this text is directly linked to the one we just finished in verse number 27 and verse number 26. And that was about praying. And it was also about according to the will of God. It was saying that the Holy Spirit helps us pray for things when we do not know what to pray for. And the reason that the Holy Spirit can do it is because He knows or God knows Him and His mind and the Holy Spirit knows us. And therefore, it is a matter that He, the Holy Spirit, will pray always according to God's will. The Holy Spirit never prays contrary to what God's will is. So the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer is going to pray in accordance to the will of God. That's important because verse number 28 is about the will of God. And so that's why the conjunction sits at the front end of it, even though the first verses, verse 27, 26 and 27, deal with intercession. Verse number 28 deals with intervention. And we point that out because he says this is to be according to a plan that God is working out in our lives. By the way, and this is important. This, uh, the Bible does not teach what Rick Warren teaches on page number 22 and 23 of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. What Rick Warren teaches on page 22, 23, uh, as I looked at it this week in my office, because I was retracing some statements he made, uh, he is absolutely, unequivocally wrong, period. And he's wrong from this standpoint. Rick Warren teaches on page 22 and 23 what is called fatalism. Fatalism. What fatalism is, is to simply say that uh, God plans every single detail of your life when you were born. When he thought about your birth, he put in you a, a computer program. And he shoved that program into you, and you started ticking like an energizer bunny. And what happened was, everything in your life, every single thing in your life, God pre-planned, pre-determined, pre-worked, and stuck that thing in you, and you've been operating on that program. There's one problem with that, and I can't believe he didn't catch it. Why would we need his book and 40 days to study it if God's already got the program planned, and it's already functioning, and it's ticking? Tell me why I need somebody to tell me God's purpose when God has already pre-programmed me to follow his purpose. And that's what fatalism is. And that's exactly what the text says. He quotes, in fact, in this case, he strengthens his idea about it by quoting Psalm 139, verse 16. And, of course, that's the Bible where he says, and then he quotes the paraphrased, he quotes the living Bible at this juncture. And he says, you scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. You'll forgive me, that's not true. That is not true. You know what that does? That pins all sin on God's shoulders. If he's pre-programmed and he's predetermined that this is what he's going to do, your, your schedule was already set, then that means God sinned. It wasn't you, it wasn't your fault. God did it. And I'm saying that's what he teaches. I, I would say this to you. Uh, you should know if you've ever read Psalm 139 in that passage. It does not say that God predetermined the physical parts of our body in, the, in those days or our days. It does say he foreknew. He foreknew. And there's a difference between predetermining and foreknowing. A vast difference. You could put a Mack truck in the difference between foreknowing and predetermining. If I predetermine something, it means this is the way it's going to be and that's the way we're going to do it and there's no if and buts about it. But if I say I know what's going to happen, that's a different story. 
And I'm saying to you, God knows everything, and God knew exactly what you'd do, but He did not pre-program you to do it. And that means you have a volitional will. You can get up in the morning and you can make choices about what you will do. But if you get out and sin, I'll guarantee you, God did not predetermine that you would sin. God did not set that in a computer program and stick it in you and you went out to do your bidding and that sin was God's fault. That's not what the teaching of the Scripture is. And I'll assure you, even though they link it to Romans 8.28, that has nothing to do with Romans 8.28. Not one iota. And so on that fact, he is dead wrong. Look at the verse again, Romans 8, verse 28, and we know. We've already talked about some things we don't know, and one of them was back up there in the verse that deals with us not knowing what to pray for. But here is something we know, and this carries the idea that this is, a, this is an absolute. This is something that does not vary. It's the same concept, as we, if you would call it that, that we covered back in verse 24 and 25, where it talks about the hope. The word there is a certainty of something that's absolutely going to happen. It's the same context of this word, and we know. This is not something we hope will happen. This is a fact. This we know will happen. Paul wrote this under inspiration, and he included himself in knowing it. We know this. So what's in this verse of Scripture can be known, and it is absolute, and it does not vary. It's interesting, too. There are some professing believers, folks who walk down an aisle, profess faith in Christ, who do not believe you can know for sure you're born again. And uh, I bring it up at this point because in the context of knowing, if you don't know for sure you're saved, then you couldn't possibly enjoy Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is not going to mean a thing to you if you first don't know that you're saved. Now, the problem with that is that uh, they say you cannot believe and, and you cannot be sure that you're born again. Now, let me tell you why they would say that. Because they do this. They uh, simply put their salvation in perspective as a partnership with God. See, they say, uh, I'm saved. God saved me, and I'm, I'm keeping me saved. I'm, God and I are in this thing together. Wrong. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of you and the Lord. It's of the Lord. Now, let me tell you something. If my salvation depended on me and the Lord working this thing out, I doubt mine too. I wouldn't doubt his side. He can hold up his end of the log very well. It's my end of the log that I'd be concerned about. You see, God's not going to mess up. That's a given. If it has to do any aspect of God's activity, is going to be done to perfection. You can trust him. You just can't trust yourself. And so if you're holding up one end, he's holding up one end. You've got a partnership going, but it's a bad one. You say, but I'm in partner with God. That's, yeah, you are. And that's wonderful that his end is going to be fine, but your end's not going to be so fine. You see, your salvation does not rest in your hands. It rests with the Lord. And when you trusted Christ as your Savior, it was as if He said, Look, I'll take that out of your hands and I'll take care of your salvation and it's secure. And, and, and I'll take care of it and I will get you home. And one day you'll wake up in glory and it won't be because you did a thing to get there. It will be because I got you there. And that's exactly what he's doing. So these folks who have that doubt about salvation need to be reminded that salvation is of the Lord and it's not a partnership with the Lord. It's all of the Lord. He did it. He died for me. He pardoned my sin. He paid my sin debt. And all I did was believe on him for what he did. Not believe on him and tell him I'll help him all I can to make sure we get this thing done. Certainly there are right directions about sanctification and behavior after you know Christ. But that doesn't contribute to you getting to heaven. That happens because you're going. 
It's because you're going, you're going to behave that way. It's not that that's going to help you get there. It's just that, that when people get there, they're going to behave this way. And you start practicing ahead of time, as it were. And that's what sanctification is all about, is to conform you to the likeness, the image of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory. Something else in the verse, verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good. Stop at that point. Interesting here, without a doubt, and, and everybody in this room who grasped this verse of Scripture would say this, this is without a doubt one of the greatest promises in all of the Bible. And you ought to really get a grip on that. This is one of the greatest promises in all about all the Bible. And that is that God causes all things, everything, to eventually, finally work to your good. And uh, all, obviously all the things included here, all things would include what was back up in verse 18 where he talked about the sufferings we are enduring. It would also include all the bondage of corruption that we're going through. That works to, uh, to our good eventually. Verse 22, 23 talks about the pain that uh, the creation is groaning under, travailing under, but we ourselves, verse 23 says, so that would include that. And it would also include, verse 23, even the waiting. Even the waiting is for our good. Waiting makes you trust. You know, if everything happened to you the moment it was promised, here it is, you know, I promised to give you that, here it is, there'd be no faith involved in that. So faith is encouraged and strengthened and so forth. What's interesting here, when you read this, be careful to read it right. It is not saying that all things that come into your life are good in and of themselves. That's not what it is saying here. It is saying that God, who takes those things and can make them turn to good for your glory, so individual things may come into your life that are very, very bad. But the Bible is saying, and this verse is saying, but God can take those individual bad things and He can make them work to your good. Now, I grant you, there's some things that come into our lives that we don't see that. Uh, not that this is a big thing, but it, it's an aggravating thing more than anything else. I didn't suffer any pain from it, but uh, I put up or had a, a, a garage door put. Daniel and I put a garage door opener on my garage uh, some weeks back. And the fact of the matter is that uh, I was going to replace the door in the garage, and so that was just going to be a part of the process. I get this thing all scheduled, make an agreement, sign a contract. People come out to install the garage door. They put the garage door up, and they burn out a brand-new garage door opener. But claim it's not their fault because they had to make the adjustments, and I had to run the thing so long that it evidently run out one circuit in it, and so it won't work anymore, and they don't want to think that it's their fault. Now, it was working on the morning that they started. Now, you figure, well, it's not their fault if, in fact, by the time they get done, I don't have a garage door opener anymore. It doesn't work. Now, the fact of the matter is, honestly, it irritated me. And that was a young man who helped, and, and this guy, I, I was patient, gracious with him and, and uh, with his boss who finally came down to the properties and so forth. But the thing is this. I was always thinking, I said, you know, I'm preaching on Romans 8, 28, Sunday. Wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? I'm going to get something here that I don't understand. And how is this going to work for my good? So I got out in my backyard, sitting there some rocks, and I said, Lord, I'd just like to ask you a simple question. How is this going to help the situation? Would you mind just letting me in on this today? Because I'm going to preach on Sunday, and it'll be very helpful. If I can tell our folks, here's what happened to my garage door, but here's what God was doing. It was as if the heavens were brass. I, he didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. You know why? Because it's this. I want you to trust me. You see, this word no here carries the idea is that there's no evidential proof of it. There's nothing you could put to put your hands on and say, this proves it. Oh, we may have experiences in the past that we might encourage it. But it's to say, we know this. How do we know this? We know it by faith. 
God made us a commitment and a promise. And He is saying, I guarantee you, this in the end will work out exactly the way it should work for your good. And we hope for His glory. Here's something else that should be an encouragement to you, and that is this, that this is a constant force. You see, what this verse of Scripture doesn't do, it does not limit this as to you only get 25 of these credits in your lifetime. There are 25 things in your life going to work for your good. The rest of them are going to be bad news. That's not the way it works. All things work together for good. All of them. So you don't, have a, you don't have 25 coupons that you get to cash in when bad things happen to you and you get the good out of 25 of these because you had 25 coupons. And that's not the way it works. This thing is in constant force. That means it's not working on Monday and then it takes Tuesday off. So you better not get into anything on Tuesday because it doesn't pay off on Tuesday. No, no. It pays Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And by the way, there are no situations that it does not apply to. This text of Scripture does not limit... The, ray, the phrase, all things in any way. There are no things or nothing that you can look to in this text that says it limits all things. It's not really all things, Pastor Henry. And you'd be amazed at the commentaries in my office that say, well, all things doesn't mean all things. Well, forgive me, but what does all things mean? If all things don't mean all things, then tell me what all things mean. And as Dr. Bill used to say, if it doesn't mean what it says, then it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. And the fact is, it does mean all things. Every situation in, in those contexts, every situation can be for His honor, your good. I read and read these often the, the, about the songs in our songbook and so forth. I was reading about one of the authors, and the uh, name is William Cowper. William Cowper. William Cowper had a, a, a very able, capable poet. He lived in England. And um, he was prone to have deep depressions. He'd get into a bad, down, de discouraged, depressed mood. And uh, he, he fought this for a long, long time. He just couldn't seem to win over it. And one day he um, picked up the phone and he called a cab operator and asked the cab to come to his door, pick him up. The cab driver came to his door, opened the door, put Mr. Cowper in the back seat and drove off. And as he did, he said, where do you want to go, sir? And he said, I want to go to London Bridge. And so the driver said, yes, sir, we'll go to London Bridge. And so the cab driver began to drive in that direction. As he began to get to what he thought would be close to London Bridge and the main straight that goes on to the bridge, a heavy, dense fog just dropped in. Traffic picked up, and so they were beginning to make a couple of turns to get out of the thick of the traffic because everything just slowed to a crawl. Next thing he knew, the cab driver was lost. And the story is, and it's told by Cowper and others who, who knew the cab driver, who witnessed to him, spoke of it. He said for two hours, the cab driver, who knows the city of London extremely well, like the back of his hand, could not find London Bridge. So after two hours of driving, Mr. Cowper said to the driver, would you please just see if you can find your way back to my residence, and I'll stay there. And the cab driver apologized, but said, Yes, sir, I believe I can find that. I'll try. And so he drove another 30, 40 minutes and got Mr. Cowper back to his residence, got out of his cab, turned around, opened the door, got Mr. Cowper inside of his house, or got to start to go toward the house. When Mr. Cowper got out, he turned to him and says, What is the fare? The man said, I failed to get you to your destination. You owe me nothing. Mr. Cowper said, Oh, yes, I owe you a great deal. I was going to London Bridge to jump off. I was going to end my life. And you saved it. And so he pitched down on the seat of the cab, 
twice the normal route or a fair price. Mr. Cowper went inside his residence, sat down, and wrote this hymn. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storms. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his vast designs, and he works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings over your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble senses, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he someday will make it plain. That's pretty good for a man who was just getting ready to kill himself. But there's a man who caught on to and understood and fully embraced what Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28 is really saying. You see, I say to you that this kind of verse of Scripture, some people pick up and say, well, what it says here is that we can see this happen. This verse doesn't say a thing about seeing. And that's so very important because a couple of weeks ago a man spoke about some things that happened in his life and, and he said, well, he, you know, he, was, he was not seeing any of it. And I said to him, who told you you would? Who told you you would see it? He said, oh, Romans eight twenty eight. I said, what does it say? He said, it says, and he began to quote it. And he looked, and he, he looked at me a little bit funny and he said, uh, it doesn't say about seeing, does it? I said, no. You see, this verse of Scripture does not promise you that before you die, you'll understand all the reasons for all the things that happen in your life. That's not what this verse says. It doesn't say you'll see it. It says you know it. Now, for us, we know exactly how that comes. We know it's a matter of by faith, and uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have the evidence because God said it. This will happen this way. So you can trust Him. You can be absolutely sure, and so much so that you can say, I know that all things work together for good. But you may not get to see it. It may not come in your lifetime. You may not be able to understand every nit and cranny of things that took place and say, I see now fully and clearly and totally. But you can have the same rest as if you did see it because you know a God who cannot lie has made a promise to you in this text of Scripture. There's something else. This is not the only verse of Scripture where you find this truth, and that's sometimes a, a little bit of a shock to people. Look, if you would, in your Bible to 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and look, if you would, at verse number 15. 2 Corinthians 4, and verse number 15, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, for all things, that's the first thing you ought to note, is the two words, all things. For all things are for your sakes. That's another way of saying everything is happening to you and all these challenges you're facing, all these things are for your sake, for your good, for your benefit, for your blessing. All these things are for your sake that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, 
But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, watch the words, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. All things are, in this verse of Scripture, taking the text together, all these things are working together for our good. That's the same thing Romans 8, 28 says. Exactly the same thing. And so the Bible just doesn't say it in one location. Romans 8, 28, it says it in many places. The secret here of the context of verse number 17 is, these things worketh for us. Over in Romans 28, 8, 28, it has the phrase, these things work together. All things work together. That's an important word, and you ought to underline it in your Bible. Those two words, work together, because they come from a Greek word from which we get our English word, which is pronounced synergia. Synergia is a, is a unique word in many facets, but listen to it. From the dictionary, it says it refers to working together of various things to produce something that is greater than and often completely different from the sum of each of the elements acting independently. Now, you'd expect that from a dictionary. It seems a little crazy. Let me put it in more of an illustration. That's to say, in the physical world, the correct combination of what otherwise would be harmful chemicals can, in point of fact, produce substances that are very helpful. Best illustration is the fact that when you go out for lunch today or go home to your residence, you'll pick up a salt shaker, and you'll probably put some salt on some of your food. What's interesting about that is the salt in that shaker is made up of two poisons. Two poisons. All the salt in your salt shaker is made up of two poisons. And what Synergium says, it defines and says, it's when two things that are literally opposite or uniquely different come together and work together to make something different than it was intended to be. You have chlorine and sodium and salt. You take either of them independently, they could kill you or make you deathly ill. You put them together in the right combination and they make your food taste better. That's synergy. Now that's the kind of word, our Greek word, our English word comes from the Greek word out of this text of Scripture that says all things work together. Things that may not seem like they ought to work together then think, in fact, things that look like they're working against us. But God gets a hold of them like he would with chlorine and sodium, and he mixes them in a the right combination, and they make our food taste better. I'm telling you that God gets a hold of the things that come into your life, and just as he would the sodium and the chlorine, and he undertakes and intervenes, and he makes these things work for your good and ultimately to his glory. By the way, it should never be said that God uses sin. should never say that God uses sin. Oh, I understand that everything somebody might look at and say, well, all things, wouldn't that include sin too? Well, let me say it to you this way. God brings good out of bad, and He never, because of His character, would use sin as His primary tool of righteousness tool of righteousness or his, his instrument of righteousness, as Paul wrote some in the epistles, uh, is not something that he would use sin. He would not use sin as an instrument of righteousness. What he does, though, is, I think, equally unique and miraculous, and that is he overrules sin by, in some cases, changing or canceling its normal evil consequences 
and brings into your life, strangely enough, a substitute in benefit and blessing. Things that would be so bad because of what happened or what you did or the actions you took and what should normally be the result of that sinful action would be a horrific conclusion to your life. How that God somehow, miraculously and only known to Him, can either change, cancel, or redirect the effects so that your life can be blessed and encouraged and move on with. You see, you might take the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. I don't know, and I'm not about to stand here and tell you that Joseph was a small, spoiled brat. Some folks believe he was and believe that's why his brothers were jealous of him. They thought his father loved him and he was a spoiled brat and they thought he was, you know, hard to get along with. And they just describe a whole lot of things about Joseph's life. And there are books out there right now that if you read those books, you think Joseph was the sorriest, low-downedest scoundrel that ever hit the face of the earth. Now, for all I know, he may have been. I don't know. But I do know this. Whatever he did in his life that caught him, I'm sure, by surprise when his brother sold him down into Egypt and he eventually ended up in that context that I'm sure he was uh, he was shocked how in the world this happened to me well the fact of the matter is that it wasn't that God used the sin in his life to get him to that point necessarily it may have caused him, and it may have been the consequence if he was indeed rebellious against his father and his family etc there's some consequences that could have come about with that but it's not to say that God used the sin in his life to make him better as some books are stating what God did was change the consequences that he may have affected, and God brought good out of a bad situation. I just don't think it's a wise thing to say that the holy God of heaven uses sin. I can see that as encouraging everybody just go out and sin. God's gracious and able and capable, and he'll just take your sin and make it good. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think God can take the consequences of your sin, and I think God can take the circumstances around it. But God doesn't want to use sin as his ultimate righteous instrument or tool to get his glory accomplished. And I think we need to be careful about that. Something else to be noted that uh, you shouldn't forget in the whole realm of this thing that, that uh, God uses something else. And that is God uses chastening for our good. You see, we believe that all things work together for good. And the consequence of that is you need to keep before you what... I believe Paul wrote in Hebrews 12, he said, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit or for our good, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So even the chastening of the Lord is good for us. It's profitable for us. So even in the circumstances of things where God is dealing with sin, good will come of it. But only because of the chastening of the Lord and what He does in that context. Let me close quickly with the last part of verse number 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. There's only two qualifying statements in Romans 8.28. And these two qualifying statements are the only two limitations that the verse holds. And these qualifying points and these limitations are as to who it applies. And that's why I say that it's not for everybody. This verse of Scripture is not for everybody you meet today. This verse of Scripture is not for everybody in Johnson County. This verse of Scripture is not for everybody who runs into some hardship or problem or pain or problem. It is not. 
Why? Because there are two qualifiers in it. What's the first one? Anybody? You have to love God. If you don't love God, Romans 8, 28, it's not for you. Secondly, if you're not the called, and you see the phrase in verse number 28, or who are the called, and it's the called, the called, according to his purpose. If you're not in that classification, this is not for you. And so these folks who write the editor's letter or letter to the editor and they talk about, well, we know that everything works to good to everybody in the world. That's not true. That's not true. Did you know for the lost person that good things don't happen for their good? They happen to get... God allows those things to get their attention that He is good and He can help them, but they're going to have to give up on themselves and turn to Him. So all things don't work for good to lost people. They look, they work to their discredit, so to speak, and yea, verily to their pain, and in some cases their death. But for the believer, all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to His purpose. In the context of these, it looks like it's from two angles. Number one, you love God. That's the human side. God called you. That's His side. So this is sort of a, an absolute guarantee that we don't misunderstand who these people are. These are Christian people. Born again, believers, people who now love God, people that God had on His, as his list of mercy, who He called, and these are the folks who responded to it. By the way, you should understand that when God gave the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, chapter number 20, God full well knew there were people who hated Him. And you need to full well know that this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. Verse 6, And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me. God said, I know there are people who hate me. And I know there are people who love me. And God said, Romans eight twenty eight is written to those who love me, not to those who hate me. Everything's not going to work for their good, and they need to embrace that. John chapter 14, in verse number 15, stated very clearly that uh, in the case of, of people, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That means very simply, that sort of sets up a criteria for us to judge our own hearts with. And it's very simple. A person who disobeys God personally, persistently, continually, regularly, is not one who loves God. And he's testifying it by his own disobedience. And that means very simply, Romans 8, 28, is not for that person. Not for that person. It's for the person who loves God. And the person who loves God, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Does that mean he'll never miss one? Does he'll never fail at one? No, it doesn't mean that. It means it be the general character of his life that if you looked at this person, you'd say, that guy loves God, he disobeys, he obeys his word. That's the character of his life. So the question is, what's the character of your life? The people who know you best, would they say, oh yeah, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, they... Obey the Lord. They obey His Word. They love the Lord. Yes, I know that. Or they say, I don't think so. They pretty well do what they want to do. They pretty well take their life in their own hand, do their own thing. God's sort of a second thought kind of deal. You know, if, he, if God breaks in on their lives and He changes their schedule, then they'll talk about it. But by and large, they're their own people. I'm telling you that this verse of Scripture is not written to those people. It's written to saints, God's people, who obey God, love God and show their love for Him because they obey Him. 
By the way, this verse of this phrase in here where it says, The called, you know it and I know it. There's a general call of salvation, which from a Bible standpoint, we should understand that most people will reject. You should understand that, that most people are going to reject the gospel. You should understand that. Because the road that goes to heaven is a, is a narrow one. And how many begin? Few there be that go in there. Not a lot, few. The point made is that the Scriptures set that forth very clearly. This phrase, the call here, I believe is a reference to those folks who have accepted that first invitation, that general calling, and have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. These are the folks who are the call. They are folks who have understood. Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I did not do that on my own initiative. God spoke to my heart. God convicted me. And then God, by His Spirit, drew me to Himself. And I, in simple, childlike faith, confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's what the word, the phrase, the called, incorporates in this text of Scripture. Then finally, in verse 28, notice the last phrase. It is those who love God and who are the called. And he says, according to His purpose. What is the purpose of God? Well, we get into that the next time we get together. That incorporates verses 9, 29, and 30. Those are the two verses that deal with the purposes of God. You see, God has a purpose for your life, and, and uh, it's, it's different than we normally think of purposes. But it is recorded in verse 29 and verse number 30. It relates it and relates it very well. And my saying is this. No matter what else we may accomplish, if we miss that purpose, we've missed all of it. And so the thing is that my purpose in life ought to be to bring honor and glory to the Lord. And it ought to be that I understand that while I'm doing that, what things come into my life, He will work for His good, for His glory, and for my good. So I hope that you will get with us and stay with us, not only from next week's revival, but the week following on Sunday we'll pick up with that text of Scripture. Let me close with a couple of points. One, I read this this week. It says, someone said that Christian salvation is not reduced to something you get and then try to keep. It is rather a life that is bonded with God. It's a life that is wrapped up in the eternal purposes of God. And that is absolutely true. I hope that you don't get caught up in what the world calls chance and luck and fate and fortune, but you know that there is a personal Heavenly Father who cares deeply for you and who wants very much, if you know Him as Savior, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, the Heavenly Father, He knows you know His Son as Savior, then He knows full well what's best for you. And He's going to work all these things in your life to that end. I think it was John Phillips who wrote this. It relates about Joseph. He said, The principle is beautiful, and it's beautifully illustrated in the story of Jacob. He said, Jacob was reaping the harvest of his younger years. Joseph was gone. Reuben, his son, was disgraced. Judah was dishonored. Simeon and Levi had broken his heart. And Dinah was defiled. Simeon, even now, was in prison. Beloved Rachel was dead. Famine threatened his family. And then came the demand from Egypt that young Benjamin must appear there before its awesome governor, before any further supplies would be released. Old Jacob wept. Quote, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. Genesis 42, 36 closes with these six words. All these things 
are against me. All these things are against me. And he was dead wrong. It was his own son that sat in the governorship down in Egypt who had asked to see his brother. And when that brother appeared, Joseph, who sat there as the governor over the king's estate, was going to give his father's family everything they ever would need and bless them in ways they could have never dreamed. And yet the father was sitting up there at his house and saying, all these things are against me. So you're in good company if you feel like that the world is against you and it's caving in and it's falling apart. There have been other folks that where you sit and felt what you felt. But I got good news for you. If you love God and are the called according to his purpose, all things will work out for your good. And I trust you'll be working to point that it'll be for his glory. And that ought to be your highest goal. That the Lord would be glorified in your life, be honored, and through your life and testimony here, other people may come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the encouragement of this text of Scripture. Thank you for the great truth that it sets for us and sets before us. I thank you for the fact that there are so many in our own fellowship here who walked through and been through some challenging times. And yet all the way through, there's been one overwhelming and very obvious, conspicuous point of truth. And that is that you're working all things after the counsel of your own will for their good. To that end this morning, we give you the glory and the praise and the thanks. But we also recognize in this verse there's a qualification. And the qualifications are very simply that these are saved people to whom this is written. This is not written to the world at large. This is not forever Tom, Dick, and Harry on the street. This is for your people. And so this morning, I pray as we come to this invitation that you may first and foremost speak to our hearts and help everyone in this room who names the name of Christ, who says they've been saved by the grace of God, to be certain and sure of that. And then secondly, I pray, Father, for any who are here this morning who have never trusted Christ to Savior, that you may convict their hearts of their need of Christ, their need of someone who would pay their sin debt. And Christ's death on the cross has done that. So, Father, I pray you convince them and convict them of that reality. And I pray as the invitation is given, you'll bring men, women, boys, and girls to yourself. Those who ought to come for baptism would come. Those for church membership would come. Those who have other needs would simply lay them before you and know that you're working all things to our good and to your glory. I pray this morning that you would work in hearts and help us to rest in your stated purpose for our lives. And help us not, I pray, Father, to worry and wonder about hopelessly as children of orphans. But I pray that we might be those who know that our Heavenly Father is in charge. And even in the life when circumstances go against us, that even those things, somehow, some way, our Heavenly Father will make them turn out to be good for us. Help us to rest in that, to trust you, and help us not to wrestle with that issue anymore. Bless now, I pray, the invitation. You bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour, and we'll be careful to give you the glory and the praise for it. For we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 in your hymn book, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come. If you need to know Christ as Savior, we want to help you. We'll have someone take you in a Bible side room, in a counseling room, and open the Scriptures and show you how you can be saved. If you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, we'd be glad to help you and assist you in that. 
if you've thought about it and prayed about joining the New Life Baptist Church, we'd be glad for you to do that. Whatever the need is in your life, then we want to be of help to you, even as the scriptures are a help to all of us. I hope this morning that you've taken to heart this great truth, and it will be a great promise to you to which you'll hold for years and years to come. If God has spoken, we invite you to come. 282, verse number 1. Let's sing together, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? spoken to your heart would you come we'll sing the next verse please God has spoken to your heart would you come God has spoken to your heart would you come Thank you very much. I appreciate your time and attention this morning.